Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. Last week, Miss Universe Australia, Maria Thetil, made it to the top 10 of the Miss Universe pageant in Florida. The competition finally kicked off in the United States, 74 hopefuls competing to take home the coveted crown. And Miss Universe Australia, Maria Thetil, did us proud, placing in the top 10. Maria, congratulations. At age 28, Maria, who was born in Australia to Indian parents, thanked her supporters who stood by her as many told her that a short brown woman would have no chance at making it that far. But while we celebrate the more diverse faces representing Australia in this arena, today we look into whether there's still a place for beauty pageants in 2021, an era where women are fighting to be seen as more than their face value. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. Festivals that showcase the most beautiful women have been around for centuries. Queens and princesses have been crowned to represent towns and harvests for hundreds of years. But the origins of the modern beauty pageants that we know today started with a very famous circus man. Phineas T. Barnum had a long history of holding contests at his dime museum in New York. He'd held a baby show in 1855 that brought in a crowd of thousands to help judge which baby would be crowned as being of genuine American stock. He'd tried to get women to participate in a similar contest in 1854, putting up a dowry if the winner was single or a diamond tiara if she was married, but it failed to lure the respectable women of the time to put themselves on public display. So he changed it up and allowed a photograph to be displayed instead. The top 10 would win a specially commissioned portrait painted of them, which would be turned into a fine arts collectible called the World's Book of Female Beauty. The template took off, and it was imitated across America. As the 20th century unfolded and it was more acceptable for women to display themselves publicly, beach resorts in the US started to hold regular pageants as entertainment for their guests, hence the swimsuit section. But in 1921, organisers in Atlantic City would put together a beach resort pageant that would kick off a tradition that continues to this day. They got newspapers across the country to sponsor local beauty contests. Those winners would head to the major event in Atlantic City. The newspaper would pay for her wardrobe and the organisers her travel expenses. Local Atlantic City newspaper man Herb Test is quoted as saying, we'll call her Miss America. 
The first winner of the Miss America pageant was 16-year-old Margaret Gorman from Washington, D.C. Her measurements, 30, 25, 32, 108 pounds or just shy of 49 kilos, and 5 foot 1 were considered perfect. The president of the American Federation of Labor was quoted in the New York Times saying Gorman represents the type of womanhood American needs. Strong, red-blooded, able to shoulder the responsibilities of homemaking and motherhood. It is in her type that the hope of the country rests. The pageants evolved over time to go from natural, wholesome and pure to an era of makeup, hairstyling and plastic surgery, while still assuring fans the women involved were all still wholesome and pure. The competition expanded to include women of colour from differing backgrounds and more pageants emerged around the world, including here in Australia. The pageants, though, have been controversial from the start. Conservative protesters thought them immoral. In 1945, Bess Meyerson was told to change her name because it sounded too Jewish. In 1949, Miss America Jackie Mercer got married and divorced during her reign, the board enacting a rule that all contestants sign a pledge that they've never been married or pregnant, a pledge that remained in place until 1999 when pageant organisers announced they would lift the ban on those who'd had an abortion or who were divorced. 1952's winner refused to pose in a swimsuit after the pageant. The major sponsor, Catalina Swimwear, pulled their money and started the rival Miss USA pageant. The very first Miss Universe gave up her crown because on her tour around the world, she met a man and fell in love. But the rules forbade her from marrying him, so she resigned. The burning bra feminist stereotype was born from the protests at the 1969 Miss America pageant in Atlantic City, women throwing things considered to be typically feminine into the trash can of freedom. Vanessa Williams was the first black woman to win Miss America in 1984, but she was forced to resign when Penthouse magazine published unauthorised nude photos of her. She would later become a judge, the pageant CEO apologising to her 32 years after her forced resignation. Miss Universe 1996 Alicia Machado had a terrible year after her win. Donald Trump, who owned the pageant back then, admitted to bullying her for gaining weight. She said he called her Miss Piggy and Miss Housekeeping for her Venezuelan accent. In 2007, Miss Teen South Carolina, Caitlin Upton, made news headlines around the world for this response to the question, one-fifth of Americans can't find the US on a map. Why is that? I personally believe that US Americans are unable to do so because uh, some people out there in our nation don't have maps and uh, I believe that our education, like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere like such as, and I believe that they should, uh, our education over here in the U.S. should help the U.S. or should help South Africa so we will be able to build up our future. Despite getting a lot of negative press for the garbled response, she placed third in the competition. In 2009, the first runner-up, Miss California, Carrie Prejean, also made headlines for answering this question from Perez Hilton. Vermont recently became the fourth state to legalise same-sex marriage. Do you think every state should follow suit? Why or why not? Well, I think it's great that Americans are able to choose one or the other. Um, We live in a land that you can choose same-sex marriage or opposite marriage. And you know what? 
in my country and in, in, in my family, I think that I believe that a marriage should be between a man and a woman. No offense to anybody out there, but that's how I was raised and that's how I think that it should be between a man and a woman. Thank you. Despite the controversies, the pageant circuit is still alive and well. Miss Universe Australia, Maria Thetil, saying she decided to put her hand up when she saw someone who looked a lot like her up on that stage. I would consider myself a natural creative and the only reason I thought pageantry could be an interesting platform is because in 2019, the Miss Universe Australia winner was an Indian Australian lawyer and seeing Priya do something like this challenged any misperceptions I had around what I would need to be to be Miss Universe Australia and I thought oh my goodness I could give this a go because her job was unconventional she was a woman of color so I decided to give it a crack and I thought if I get this I'm going to make it my own and I decided in April 2019 I would apply found out I was a finalist in October 2019 a year following that, October 2020, I won. And now here I am and just represented Australia on the world stage. Well, just like Priya, you two were already well established in your career by that stage. You've you know, got a degree, you've been working for the Victorian government in talent acquisition. What did the people around you, both your work colleagues and your families, think when you decided to take up pageant life? I think it was definitely a little bit of a shock to the system for my work colleagues. My family were always very supportive because my parents, they just cared that I did everything I needed to do to set up my future. So I got a degree in psychology, then I went and did another degree in management. So mum and dad were like, great, she's done her bit. We trust her with anything else she decides to do. But funnily enough, when I decided to enter, one of the first things a colleague had said to me when I told them I was a finalist was, that's really great, but do you think your chances of winning are hindered because they already have an Indian winner? And that was pretty disheartening to hear. I was also met with a little bit of confusion and they thought, you know, you're a feminist. Why are you doing something like this? We don't understand. What will people around you at work think? But I was used to people having judgments and people having opinions. And I thought, you know what, I'm not going to let the fear of other people's opinions stop me from doing what I want. For the most part, people were super supportive at work and they would play the Miss Universe music when I'd walk past their desks. So <laughs> it was pretty funny. It was really good. And when I won, they celebrated it. You know, the majority of people were really supportive and they let me know they were very proud of me when I won and have been following the journey. So it's been great. Talk to me about that relationship between feminism and beauty pageants because they often clash and we can't ignore the fact that beauty pageants focus on your appearance and there are still rounds that are quite controversial like the swimsuit rounds, etc. How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And I understand why people think what they think. And my opinion on it is you cannot just abolish everything you disagree with, but I believe in changing from within. So I thought to myself, firstly, yes, I know that my body is not, you know, marginalized by any sense of the word. There are people who need the body positivity and inclusivity movement far more than I do as a petite shorter woman. But I can tell you that within this sphere, 
the body shapes that we see represented, it's always tall, super thin. And, you know, there's a lack of representation of diversity in terms of that respect. So for me to show up as a five foot three woman, I cannot tell you every day I would wake up to comments of she won't do it. She won't move past, you know, the semifinals. She's short. She doesn't look the part, this, that, and the other. But my approach was if I am going to participate in this and do things like the swimsuit round, the evening gown round, and then hopefully get to the point where I can speak. I want to show people that it's not about fitting a mold, but it's about walking in your body with confidence and pride. And I did that. Every day of the competition, I was half the size of the women there, but I stood there with confidence and I thought, this is the body that I have. I don't have a full bust. I'm not six foot tall, but if I'm healthy and fit and confident, that's what it should take. And yes, I want to see more diversity of body shape and size, but I think we should celebrate the wins and progress is progress. So for me to get to the top 10 whilst not meeting what they traditionally tell you you need to look like, I think that's a win. So Maria sees a lot of good in pageants and Professor Susan Broomhall from the Gender and Women's History Research Centre at the Australian Catholic University says she doesn't deny it can have some major positive impacts on the individual. I think they can empower individuals and indeed the communities and the charity and the causes that they're advocating for within tournaments and the pageants. But overall, I don't think these are empowering to women. It it can't be empowering to women to be judged by your physical appearance and to reinforce that as one of the primary measures of success for women. Do you think the beauty pageant itself, though, has evolved over the years to be more empowering for women? I think they have certainly evolved. There is a very, very long history to beauty pageants. We can trace this right back to really some of the origins of Western history and mythology. It is, after all, Paris who's asked to choose the fairest of the goddesses and present the apple, making a decision between Hera, Aphrodite and Athena, which of course kicks off the action of the Trojan Wars. So these kind of ideas that we we choose between women based on their beauty has an extremely long history. Of course, the modern beauty pageant sort of kicks in around the 20s in the US, and that changes form because it is then women themselves coming forward to present themselves to be judged according to particular criteria. And over the course of the pageants, they have certainly evolved to to pick up stronger features that are moving away from specifically women's faces and bodies and judging them through such things as swimsuit competitions to develop other aspects of charity work, public speaking, opinions on particular world issues at the moment. But I think at their heart, they still involve such a strong element of objectification of women based on their physical appearance that it would be hard to say that we haven't moved away from what is at the origins of women's beauty being a central feature of how we understand what it is to be a woman. What do you say to the fact that these kinds of pageants are now starting to get a little bit more diverse? We're not just seeing tall, willowy, white, blonde-haired women. We are seeing more people of diverse cultural backgrounds, different statures, not necessarily different body shapes as yet. But do you think that is a positive thing? I think there is a really strong sense of a particular idea of beauty that is embedded in the origins of these competitions. If we look at the rules of the competition of the very first Miss America competition, women were required to be, quote, of good health and of the white race. 
So certainly competitions have evolved since then to take on more elements of diversity, but we are still dealing with a fairly narrow range of young people, young women, discriminating against certainly women of colour, of people with different body types and people with particularly visible disabilities. That is deeply problematic for conveying a sense to people that this is what it is to be a woman. What's the societal knock-on effect of judging a woman by her appearance? Where does that bleed into other parts of our lives? I think it's deeply problematic if we think of women as being judged through these competitions by physical appearance, that we are telling people that it is okay, that it is a sense of achievement, that you should be judged on your physical appearance as opposed to the things that you do and the things that you say and the kinds of contributions you can make in other ways. So I think at one level, at one basic level, the idea that physical appearance is paramount for women is deeply problematic. And then, of course, there is the notion of the lack of diversity, that a particular idea of beauty is being put forward as the ideal, and that that still has its origins in a fairly Western white notion of what it is to be beautiful. We could go on and say a few more things about the nature of these competitions, that they are almost always, well, there are now Misses competitions, but most of the ones we know well are Miss World, Miss America, Miss Australia. These reinforce the idea of these competitions being about young women who are effectively available as marriage objects for men. And we can also see that in the way that women who have had their crowns removed are often removed for particular kinds of behaviour that are also sending messages about what it is to be a woman. They typically have their crowns removed for criminal behaviour, but very often for sexual behaviour, for perceived overtly sexual behaviour, or even in one case a woman had her crown removed because she was a mother. So there is a certain idea being conveyed through these pageants about women being sexually available for men and for the marriage market that is, frankly, deeply depressing. For some, the beauty pageant crown has been life-changing. The winner of Miss America gets $50,000 in scholarship money and the chance to tour the country to promote social issues close to her heart. It also gives those women the opportunity to make professional connections and gain experience with PR and public speaking. But to get there, she's forked out a lot of money. It's a big industry, and from the organisers to the dress designers, makeup artists, trainers and coaches, a lot of people make a lot of money along the way. A lot of people, except for the contestants. For Maria, she says she still sees a future for the industry, one she hopes will start to look a little different. What I want to see is more diversity of size and shape, but also diversity of gender identity and diversity of faith. So last year and this year in Miss Universe Australia, we have women who are Muslim participating and they are hijabi women. And I would like to see that on the world stage. And it's just seeing the actual world we live in on the world stage. Because for so long, we've only seen such a slim segment of the population represented and put forward as this is what beauty is, this is what power is, and this is what a leader in Miss Universe looks like. I want to see that completely challenged, shattered and remoulded to reflect the world that we live in. But for Sue, she says in order for women to truly move forward and not be seen as an object, things like this need to go. 
I would much rather see competitions that are based on other kinds of skill sets and things that are open to a much more diverse range of people who identify as women and for skill sets that involve contributions to society made in different ways than somebody's physical appearance, that the way their face looks and the way that their body looks and how that might conform to some fairly old, tired notions that really don't have a place in how we'd like to see women advance in modern society. That's the quickie for today. This episode was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane. Audio production by Ian Camilleri. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.